Please open your Bibles to Judges 16. If you're using one of the Bibles in the rack ahead in front of you, it's page 201. And we're looking at verses 4 through 22 of Judges 16 together this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand now as I read this portion of Judges chapter 16 for us. Judges 16, starting in verse 4, is obviously referring to Samson. Uh, After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver." So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried. Then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man, and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen and the loom and the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Y'all can have a seat. Our Father in heaven, thank you for adopting us. Thank you for pursuing your enemies. So even for those of us here who, who don't 
want to follow Jesus, the fact remains that you're in pursuit. Uh, you, you want to, to track down your enemies, not to condemn them, but to call them into an eternal familial relationship with yourself. And your word, which is supernatural, which is active and alive, that's the primary story that you're, you're compelling us to see in your word. All throughout scripture, you want us to, to be prevailed upon by this gospel, this good news, um, that life is not about us proving ourselves or our ability to, to fully satisfy the standards of God, but it's about the one you have sent in the fullness of time to fulfill all perfection and apply it to us and to save us from ourselves and atone for our guilt. So we pray that we would, we would see Jesus and savor him this morning as we study this passage. We pray this in his name. Amen. Every so often I experience moments of what I would call uh, unexpected, heightened emotion. And I, I find myself maybe more than normal, deeply contemplative. So for example, I'll be, I'll be out on a trail run and I'll be listening to music. Uh, maybe it's like something by Ellie Holcomb, uh, her song Constellations. It always sort of gets to me. And I'll, I'll just be running along and I'll just start feeling very emotional. Uh, I'll start sort of welling up like my, te my, my tears, my eyes will start to kind of fill with tears. And, uh, and I'll just think, man, this is, um, this is a lot more emotion than I'm, I'm used to feeling. And something about these lyrics, something about the melody is making me feel this. I remember coming back from Malaysia uh, in 2015. I had been away from my family for 12 days, I think it was by this point. As I was missing my, my wife and my kids and I was tired and uh, I was watching the movie Eddie the Eagle, which I won't give you the synopsis of that movie, but it's, it's not really a tearjerker. Maybe it is, but I don't think for most people it is. And for some reason, this, this movie got to me and I started crying, but not like sobbing, just, you know, tears. And this, um, this Southeast Asian gentleman to my left was sort of giving me the side eye and I sort of was like, I'm okay, it's fine. I'm just, I'm emotional. Um, this happened recently. Uh, I was mowing the lawn. I was listening to Red Hot Chili Peppers. So you can see, this is going to be really contemplative and deep. Uh, it was a song called Slow Cheetah. <laughs> and I'm not going to sing it for you, but the lyric that got me, the lines were, uh, I know a girl who worked in a store, and she knew not what her life was for. She barely knew her name. They tried to tell her that she would never be, it's even kind of getting to me, as happy as the girls in the magazines, and she bought it. And there was something about this that just hit me, like I have daughters, I have nieces, uh, I, have, I have people in my life that I care about, and I, I just felt this sense of, of like weight for these people who are trying to be beautiful, they're trying to be attractive and appealing, and they're, they're looking at social media, they're, they're subscribing to magazines, and they're, they're adopting these paradigms of beauty that are fiction, that are just not realistic. And they feel this, this pressure to, to live up to these, these delusions of beauty. And, and there's, there's this promise that you could make yourself, like you could build your own identity instead of embracing the identity of the Father in heaven who loves you. And it just, it's heavy, it's sad. Uh, this picture of someone pouring themselves into something that, that doesn't square up or synchronize with God's agenda for our lives, which is to lavish his love on us and to say, I tell you who you are. You don't create your own identity. 
You don't come up with your own sense of worth. You can't conjure up a, a free and full and liberating life for yourself. I do that for you. And you're not going to find any, any version of sustainable freedom or satisfaction anywhere else other than in me and in a relationship with me. And as I was reading this story of Samson throughout the week, I, I thought, this is what's going on with him. He's trying desperately to, to kind of do life on his own terms and prove himself and establish his own sense of worth and his own identity, and it's destined to fail. And you know, it's easy to read the stories of Samson where he kind of looks like a comic book character. You, you don't really personally feel like you know him because he's doing all these absurd things. He's a larger-than-life figure. But I want us to pretend that we really know Samson, like he's a close friend. Maybe he's your brother, he's your son, he, he's a relative. And, and, and think about what you're, what you're seeing in the story of Samson. You're watching this, this man who has been called by God to a very special, special task. And he's, he's just completely neglecting his assigned identity. Like what God wants for him, he's just not in step with it. He's, he's just totally detached. And instead of um, em embracing what God wants for him, he has chosen, whether he sees it or not, a, a path that's destined to fail, a path of, of destruction. And this path of destruction that he's on, it, it's kind of characterized by two main things. And those are our points this morning. It's characterized by this insatiable need to prove myself. And, and this desire to, to be a people pleaser, to please, not God, but, but mere mortals and fellow sinners. So let's start with this need to prove himself. This is a really big motif all throughout the stories of Samson. Um, but it's really especially emphasized here. Uh, in all the previous episodes, Samson's actions are presented primarily as impulse and, and reaction. So Samson's impulse, by and large, is lust. He, he likes the ladies. And he, he sees a prostitute or he sees this gal in Timnah and he just he wants her. And so his lusts dictate and dominate his life. And then his reaction, by and large, is rage because the Philistines are encroaching on his, his desire for the ladies. They're, they're jeopardizing or disrupting his pursuit of a Philistine prostitute or the lady in Timnah. And so he rages against them. He just reacts to, to them encroaching on or, or disrupting his lusts. But this account is a bit different. In this account, which is by far the most detailed, thorough episode in the Samson stories, uh, Samson is in what you could call, for him, a committed relationship. This is as close as it gets to a committed relationship for a fellow like Samson. Uh, for example, we actually know Samson's girlfriend's name. He, he's had other ladies, but we don't know their names, women in Samson's life. But we know this lady's name, and that's not typical. Her name's Delilah. Uh, and we see that he's not really primarily reacting to a, a Philistine military threat. Not directly. Not like in the previous episodes. The, the main point of this story, the thing you see reoccurring and, and very primarily on display, is that he's in, this, he's in this very convoluted relationship, playing this very high-stakes, screwed-up game with his girlfriend, Delilah. And the objective of this game for Samson is to prove that he's sufficient, to prove that, that he's invincible, frankly. This is his dominion. 
He, he, he can do anything he wants. He can get away with anything he wants because he's Samson. I mean, he's the guy who could just walk out and face 1,000 Philistines and pick up a, a, a part of a donkey bone and, and just go to town. He can do whatever he wants. He's invincible. So in this story, he can put himself in the Valley of Sorek, which is Philistine territory, enemy territory, and he can be in a committed relationship with a woman who is clearly in cahoots with the lords of the Philistines. And that's a real flagrant part of this passage. Delilah doesn't disguise this at all. Look at verse 6. And she says this multiple times. Bold, the Philistines are upon you. Tell me your secret and your great strength so that I can implement whatever you tell me. And then I can just, I can, I can smuggle in some kind of Philistine uh, military force in our house. And then I can say, they're here. They're upon you. It's over. She just does this over and over and over again. It's, it's not hidden at all. You know, typically, deceitful agents, they'll try, at least to some extent, to disguise themselves. We're told in Scripture, even the devil, oftentimes he masquerades as, as not a, a scary, you know, red demon-looking guy with a pitchfork. He, he masquerades as an angel of light. And we're told in Scripture that the servants are sons of Satan, they disguise themselves as, as proprietors of righteousness, right? The pious, we are the pious leaders of the religious institution. We are, we are people promoting righteousness. It's disguised, it's insidious, it's veiled. But in this case, there's no disguise at all. It's kind of similar to Genesis chapter 3. You know, Satan, he comes into the Garden of Eden as a snake. We can all agree, snakes are just bad. They, they're evil, right? Even if you love snakes, you're wrong. It's, they're, 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 they're scary, they're creepy, they slither around. They, they're just disgusting creatures and you should, be, you should be repulsed by them, okay? And so Satan comes into the garden and he's a snake and, and he's saying to, to Adam and Eve, you could be God. You could prove yourself to be on par with God. Just giving them this this opportunity, this promise that they could be God, which is a lie. Just putting that right in, right in, their, in their sphere of options. And it's, and it's game on. We go for this. Yeah, I want to prove that I am sufficient. I, I want to prove that I could be God. And that's what's going on here with Samson. Samson says, I'm, I'm ready. You know, I've, I've dominated the Philistines. I can do anything I want amongst the Philistines. I can get away with anything. I'm ready for the high stakes poker table. Deal me in. And so in verse 7, Delilah's provoking him. Tell me your secret. And so he plays the game. That's what he's doing. He's playing a game. He says, okay, if anybody ties me with seven fresh bowstrings, then I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah immediately implements this information. She obtains government-issued bowstrings from the rulers of the Philistines. She hides assailants from the Philistines in their house or apartment or wherever they're cohabitating. And then once she's, she's bound him with these fresh bowstrings, she says, Samson, it's over. The Philistines are upon you. Now, some, some Bible scholars and commentators will say, you know, Samson, he's, he's just dense. He's, he's an idiot. He doesn't see what's happening here. He's all brawn and no brains. But I don't think that's true. Um, I don't think it's that Samson is dim-witted or clueless. Uh, I mean, think back to when he captured all the foxes and engineered this, this torches and foxtails thing. I mean, he's, he's a smart guy. He's figured some things out. I don't think he's as clueless as some commentators say. 
I think Samson knows exactly what Delilah's up to. I think the point of this story is that he's playing this game to prove himself. In other words, he's not dim-witted, he's delusional. He's absolutely delusional. All the worst stuff in human history, all the, the most tragic worst stuff comes from not lack of knowledge or, or a deficiency in intelligence, but it comes from the delusion of our own sufficiency. Let, let me say that again. The worst stuff in your life, the worst stuff in human history is not the result of lack of knowledge or intelligence. It's the result of our delusion of being self-sufficient. If you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, like this is what's going on all around the, the main character of Forrest Gump. Like the delusion of self-sufficiency is what's happening all around Forrest. So, so Forrest is, is the creators of that movie. It's their effort to say, you, you shouldn't be living in this very unhealthy, uh, resulting in all kinds of wreckage kind of way, life of trying to conjure up your own program, your own sense of sufficiency, your own quest to build your own identity or justify yourself. Because right in the thick of all of the, the narratives that, that Forrest is navigating, what do you have? Well, you have this guy who doesn't really need to prove himself at all. You know, people think he's kind of stupid, and he just says, well, stupid is as stupid does. Right? He just kind of does the next thing. He just lives with a healthy sense of confidence. He's not like dominating or anything like this. He's just, whatever mama says, you know, whatever mama said, that, that's what I live by. He's just kind of going through life, real simple. But all around him, there are these people trying to desperately, desperately trying to justify themselves and fulfill their own destinies and, and create their own identities, and it's doomed to fail. It's destined to fail. You and your quest to prove yourself, it, it won't pan out. I mean, even if you do prove yourself by the world standards, the testimonies of the world say it won't, it won't really satisfy you. There's this really well-known interview. I don't remember which Super Bowl it was, but after Tom Brady won you know, one of his many, many Super Bowls, he was interviewed. And he basically was asked the question, is it enough? I mean, have you proven yourself? And the answer was pretty clear. Not really. You know, I'm here now. Like, I'm, I'm the GOAT. I've done it. I've won Super Bowl after Super Bowl after Super Bowl. And it's still, it's still not satisfying. The quest to prove yourself, it's destined to fail. And, and we see here, you know, Samson is definitely playing that game. We have a few rounds of this going on in the story. Samson trying to, to show that he is in control. He, he, can, he can dominate the Philistines. He can play this game. So the, the, the sequence is on repeat. Delilah will entice Samson to tell her his secret. He will feed her some type of answer. And then she will act on that information. And, and she will say, the Philistines are upon you. And then Samson will display his invincibility. And Samson's loving this game. I mean, for the, for the vast majority of this narrative, Samson is saying, this is going exactly according to plan. Like, I am proving what I'm setting out to prove. I can do anything I want. I, I dominate the Philistines. He, he's like Roy Ludwig Horn. Y'all know Roy? Also known as Roy from Siegfried and Roy. Roy, uh, he, he was the master of working with 500-pound you know, jungle cats. I mean, just, I don't know if you've ever been near, in real life, near a lion or a, or a full-grown tiger, but it's, I mean, even if there's a barrier and, and they're not just sort of sleepy, if they're kind of up and feeling a little aggressive, it's, it's intimidating. It's, it's intense. 
And this guy, Roy Ludwig Horn, he works with these lions and tigers, and, and he would say, it's my domain. I, I can get away with anything around these tigers. I mean, he had them in his house. This, I'm not making this up. They, he had tigers just kind of in his house on the regular, you know, while he's making a cup of tea, maybe a tiger over on the sofa. He said, I can do whatever I want. They're like house cats to me. It's, it's super casual. He was cocky. He was overconfident. And then on October 3rd, 2003, one of his pet tigers, to clear or something, he, he, he uh, attacked Roy. He, he you know, bit his jugular. And even after Roy miraculously survived that tiger attack, Roy was still so cocky that he said, my tiger wasn't actually attacking me. You know, when he bit my jugular, this, this thing that clearly is going to kill you, I mean, that's where you would you know, set your jaws to kill a creature. Tigers know that instinctively. He said, he wasn't really attacking me. I was having a stroke, and he was just trying to you know, get me and take me to safety. That's what he was doing. No, no, you are not in control. And, and, and everything in, in our sinful self wants to say, yes, I am. I can prove myself. And, and even when we fail, even when we almost die from tiger attacks, somehow we still want to say, but I, I can reclaim control. I can be in control of my life. And so let me ask, let me ask y'all, where do, you, where do you do this? Where do you feel like I need control? I need control. Or maybe it's more like this. I am so obviously not in control in so many areas of my life, and I feel overwhelmed by all the stuff I can't control, so I cope with this to feel some measure of control. I, I go here to cope with the fact that I'm really bothered by the reality of my lack of control. Be because it's really not a problem that you're not in control. The problem is that you so desperately fight to feel in control. You catch that? You, you're never really in control. It's, it's always just, it's an illusion that we chase that I can feel really in control of my life. So where does, that, where does that happen or where does that manifest for you? I had a good buddy a number of years ago. He was getting ready to move overseas. And so uh, he was feeling really vulnerable and frail because, you know, if you're going to leave your country of origin and go to a completely new context where you don't know the traditions, you don't know the customs and the, the ways of the culture, and they drive on the other side of the road and everything about it's different. Obviously, the language is different. You don't know your way around. That feels really unsettling. You do not feel in control. And we were out grabbing a beer one night talking about this, this move, you know, moving overseas business. And, and I said, you know, how's that going? And he says, you know, I have to confess, I'm medicating myself with stuff. That's what I'm doing right now, a lot. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I'm shopping on Amazon just to feel in control. And he said, you know, I justify it. Like this place I'm moving, they, they have a lot of rainfall. And so I justify it by saying, well, I need a new raincoat. But then what I'm really doing between you and me is I go online, I shop for exactly what I want. It arrives the next day. I have control. He said, I can even control the returns. Like, like Amazon's return policy is so liberal. I can, I can have it for like almost a month and then just go online, hit a button, say, I'm going to return this, take it to a locker, put it in, and then I get that money credited back. I am in control here. And, and I'm desperate to feel some measure of, of dominion especially when I'm feeling overwhelmed by all the stuff that I don't have dominion over. Where do you feel like you need to prove yourself 
I mean, this, this crops up in all, all kinds of ways. Um, arguments are a big one. I mean, if you're like me, you found yourself arguing even when you didn't think that we we're going to have an argument. I mean, it could be with like a two-year-old. It could be with just somebody that you think, I normally get along with this person, and now we're arguing. And it could be about some trivia, something that just doesn't matter. But you need to be right. You need to, to get the phone out and say, well, we're going to check this. Because I need to be proven right. I need to win this. I need to prove myself. Competitions is another obvious example. It could be sports. I've seen this like on men's retreats. It's just like a friendly game of basketball. And then it gets a little... It's a little more than just friendly competition. And, you know, and then there's these like chippy little comments. And thankfully, it, and I've been a part of it. Right? I've contributed to it. It's just in us. I want to win, right? I want to prove myself. It could be a board game. This may or may not be true, but sometimes, maybe, I, I, don't, I don't agree to play Settlers of Catan with my family because I just can't take it. I, I know that it, I just can't. I can't have a, a gentle, calm game night with my beloved family members because I know that it's, it's just going to be too bothersome if, if, I, if that robber's on my property, you know? Um, competitions, even when people don't know you're competing, sometimes um, just at a stoplight, like, I'll, I'll, I'll just hit the gas off the line and be like, I won. You know, like, like the 60-year-old lady next to me. I don't think she knew that we were even racing. But man, I'm like, well, you, you got beat. That's what happened there. I won. Uh, it could be really arbitrary. Uh, so like as a pastor, and this is by and large a good thing. You know, I go to these meetings with other pastors or just people in general. And, you know, we'll pray, which is great. I mean, the Bible says, like, be all about the word and prayer. And so we'll pray. Uh, but there are a lot of moments where you'll be praying with people. And it'll be your turn to pray. And as you're praying, someone in the group will go, hmm. And I'll be like, yes, good. Point for me. You know, I obviously said something right. Um, never mind what God thinks. I just want this person to, hmm. And it happens so quick. Like, we can get so cocky so quickly. So uh, remember that scene in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is asking his apostles, hey, do you all know who I am? Like, let's have a powwow about who I really am. And he says, who do people in general say that I am? And then he asks them, who do y'all say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus gets excited. Jesus commends Peter. He says, you're right, Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, Peter. That is right. And Peter hears that, and he gets a big head. He hears that, and he thinks, I am right. I am very, very right. My, my identity is someone, it, I'm a person who gets things right. Okay. So then in the very next scene, I mean, this isn't chapters later. This is the very next, it's the same meeting. It's just the next part of that meeting. Jesus says, yes, I'm the Christ. So the primary work of the Christ is to come to the world, this broken, wretched world where you'd never expect to find God. And I'm here not to condemn the world, but to serve the world and to be humiliated and to, to, to be a sacrifice for the enemies of God. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and crucify. That's, that's the big thing that I've come to accomplish. And Peter, you know, still riding the high of being commended by Jesus for getting a right answer, he pulls Jesus aside and he says, hey, listen, you know how I'm right about stuff? I'm hearing you talk about like humiliation and shame and being crucified. And listen, I rebuke you because I'm, we just established I'm right. And Jesus says, stable the high horse, buddy. <laughs> you're, 
You're overconfident. You, you took an inch of correct theology and, and you've just run rampant with it. Like you've gone 20 miles in the direction of just cockiness and being overconfident. And so he, he says, you're being satanic. He, he humbles Peter quite dramatically. So that's what's going on here with Samson. He's trying to prove himself. And, and through verse 14, Samson is feeling very good about how he's playing the game. He, he's setting out to prove himself. He's, he's doing it. He's, he's really, he's just dominating this game. But then in verse 15, things shift, things change. And this change hinges on this, this frailty that, that even the cockiest people feel, which is this need to be pleasing in the eyes of our fellow mortals and sinners. Maybe you don't feel the need to, to please everybody, although that is a struggle for a lot of us. We want everybody to be happy with us and pleased with us. But there's someone in your life that you, for whatever reason, you need to, to, to put distance between themselves and, and you, 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 you just, you can't. You cannot let them be displeased with you. There's something about their, their validation that you desperately need. And so that's what's going on between Samson and Delilah. I don't pretend to know the intricacies of this relationship, but I think Samson really needs this, this core approval of Delilah. Because, see, something is different. It's not that Delilah, Delilah is simply nagging Samson, and he, and he eventually gives in and tells her the truth about you know, how, how he'll lose his strength if she shaves his head. She's been nagging him. That's, that's been going on. And it's not that she hasn't already pointed out her logic about being entitled to knowing his secret because they're in this committed relationship. She, she's made that known as well. Verse 15, there, there's new language. Something has changed. She's saying, if you really loved me, right? If you really, really loved me, you would tell me your secret. The subtext here is she's threatening to be definitively displeased with Samson. She says, I accuse you of not actually loving me. You're at risk of losing me. Even though our relationship is very convoluted and unhealthy, you're at risk of losing my essential approval of you or my commitment to staying with you if you don't tell me your secret. You need to confide in me and tell me your secret because if not, I accuse you of, of not actually loving me. And there's something that gets to Samson when she says that. You remember in 2022 uh, at the Oscars award ceremony, Remember, uh, Chris Rock was standing up there. He's a professional comedian. So uh, at these ceremonies, they hire a comedian to stand up and make fun of all you know, kinds of people in the audience. It's what they've hired the person to do. Um, and there are these two people sitting down front, a guy named Will Smith and his wife, Jada. And uh, Chris made a, a, a joke at Jada's expense. And at first, uh, the crowd laughs. W Will, Mr. Smith, laughs. And then he looks over and he sees Jada's countenance and he thinks oh no I was that was bad I should not have laughed there right and it's not because the comedian's job isn't to do this or because he didn't think on some level you know this is appropriate to laugh it's it's because his his wife was giving him this look that you you have really gotten yourself in trouble with me and he needs her approval he, he needs to please her he does, right? And so at a minimum, if you really loved me, her countenance is saying you wouldn't have laughed and now you need to atone for yourself. Or if you really loved me, you would defend me and you'd go up and, I guess, Will interpreted it. I don't know if Jada meant that, but that's what he thought, right? And, and I'm, I'm saying what drove him to do this is he needs her approval on some essential level. 
It's not because God told him to do it. It's not because he really wanted to do it, I don't think. It's because someone, someone's displeasure was bearing down on him, and he needed to do something desperate to reclaim some sense of pleasing this person, right? getting, getting approval and validation. And, and we can all relate, maybe not exactly like that, but we've all had times where we've agreed to something, not because we've really wanted to do it, and, and definitely not because God told us to do it, but because we wanted to win the approval of a particular person or a particular group. We, we are so driven by this. I mean, there are, there are books, volumes of books, dedicated to, to helping us kind of think through this phenomenon. We are just so, so committed to making sure that at least some person or segment of society is pleased with us. Because we can't bear to disappoint the people that we've, we've put on pedestals or that we idolize. Invariably, there will be moments in life when... When someone or a group of people will, will say, maybe not directly, but the sentiment will be, if you really want us to like you, then you have to support whatever we're about. Even if it goes against your conscience, even if it goes against what you believe to be healthy and, and true and good, you must, you must capitulate because otherwise you will lose the, the trust of this person, or you will disappoint this person, or you will lose the relationship you have with this person. And so you need to give in. It torments you. Uh, if you give in, God says, that's destined to fail. You can't go through life constantly trying to cater to what all these people in your, your relational sphere want you to do. I mean, let's, let's agree, for clarity, should you want to please people? Yes, you, you should want to, to make sure you're doing things that are you know, considerate of other people, thoughtful of other people. The Bible says treat others as more significant than yourself. But that's not the same as being dominated, by being driven on a very deep level by, I'm really afraid of what other people will say about me if I don't. What, what so-and-so will think of me or how they'll be disappointed with me if, if I don't figure out a way to cater to what they want. Because it's destined to fail. Uh, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, Jesus very, very pointedly says you can't live this way. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus says, you know, if you follow me, um, the chances are that even people within your own earthly family, they, they will not like certain things that you do in your, in your discipleship with, with following me. He says, you know, even your parents or your siblings, people that, that you're really close to, they, they will hand you over to the authorities to be persecuted, perhaps, because you've, you've forsaken the world's value system and you've, you've embraced Jesus' value system. Jesus says you, you can't expect to, to live as a people pleaser and a follower of Jesus. You cannot do both. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, the fact is it's, it's just not a sustainable way to live. And so God is... In this story, I think, lovingly warning us. He's saying, this is destined to fail. To, to be driven in life by a need to prove yourself and a need to please people, that is destined to fail. And you're being warned away from living like that. But the biggest point of, of this passage, and really the prevailing point in all of Scripture, is that we have failed. 
You're not, you're not ultimately being told by God to, to live in such a way so as to never fail. God's saying, you actually have failed, and I want to call some attention to that and, and introduce you to the real freedom of the gospel. Because the fact is, Samson fails. Sam and being a people pleaser. Uh, we have fallen into that trap often of being overconfident and living life as people pleasers. So the primary takeaway here is not be warned and live wisely. The primary takeaway here is you must fixate your full attention. Your wholehearted focus must be aimed at someone who lived a flawless life and yet was destined to fail. And that person is Jesus. And this is the mystery of the gospel. Jesus was destined to fail. He was destined to be crucified. He was destined to be forsaken by God because the full weight of all of our sin needs to land on somebody if God's going to come through on his promise to save sinners. And God says, what really drives your life, it's not this desire to prove yourself. It's not this desire to make sure other people are pleased with you. What drives your life is what Jesus did. And what Jesus was most adamant about doing, it's in that scene that I mentioned with Peter before, he was most fundamentally focused on and adamant about fulfilling the crucifixion work that he came to do. To lay down his life for sinners. To give his life as a ransom for his enemies. And you see, you see signposts of that everywhere. So in this passage, verse 20, it says, The Lord had left Samson. The, the fulfillment of this, of this scene in Scripture, in the fullness of time, is when the Lord forsakes Jesus, when he's dying on the cross. Because there is something to this. The Lord leaves those who've, who've sinned. And somebody has to step into this place as a substitute and take the full weight of what this means. Verse 21, it says, Samson's eyes are gouged out. He is set to grind grain in prison, which is to say he was scorned. He was persecuted. He was humiliated. And Jesus would ultimately say, that's what I've come to be. I've come to be the crucified, scorned, mocked, ridiculed, humiliated savior of sinners. And again, the thing that you are most fixated on, the thing that you are most driven to be about in life is, is to know that savior. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, I resolve to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified. That doesn't look like victory to the world. Paul says it looks like foolishness to the world. The emblem of our victory, mysteriously, it's not the Nike swoosh. It's the crucifixion. Our, our sacrament, our logo, our emblem of victory, the thing that we are obsessed with, the thing we resolve to know, we, the thing we resolve to know, and that's it. Nothing other than this is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, and that sets you free. This theme of failure is central to Christianity. Right? Jesus, he died on a cross. And when he invites us to follow him, he says, therefore, I don't want you to hide your failure. I don't want you to conceal your failures. I don't want you to cover up all the brokenness in your life and all the blemishes of your life. I want you to lead with that. Right? This is why we're always quoting that lady in John 4. Come and meet Jesus, who will do what? 
He will reveal who you really are. He will, he will show you everything you've ever done, all the things you've tried to conceal and hide and cover up. He's going to bring his light to bear on those things, not to condemn you, not to shame you, but to say, I can redeem that. I can deal with that. All the fitness I require is that you'd feel your need of it as disciples of Jesus. Well, we bring our, we bring our brokenness. We bring our sin. We, br we bring our failures. And Jesus says, that, that I can work with. We're not driven by fear of failure if we're Christians. We're free. We lean into the fact that, yep, we've failed. That's why all these stories in Scripture of the great heroes like David and Samson and Mordecai and Esther and Ruth and Samuel, it's why they're so flagrantly saying, these aren't perfect people. These, these people have all these people have all sinned. They've all messed up. And we're showing you really, really raw information about how that, how that is true. We lean into the fact that, yeah, we've sinned. We've failed. And we are free. And we walk in confidence, not because of any goodness in us, not because of any sufficiency in us, but we walk in confidence because we're looking at Jesus, the Savior of sinners, the, the shepherd of, of his former enemies. Y'all, this is why the logo of our church is a rooster. <laughs> that same guy, Peter, I was telling you about. The rooster is an emblem of Peter's failure. Did you know that? that that's why we, we, we celebrate Christ with this logo because we're saying rooster. Uh, Peter was so cocky, right? He thought, I will never fail Jesus. And Jesus says, before the day's out, you will fail me three times. And the thing you should cling to is not this delusion of your sufficiency, but cling to my cross, cling to what I've accomplished for you, you cocky apostle. It's not about you. It's not about what you can perform or accomplish. It's about what Christ has accomplished for you. God really does save sinners. God's mercy is real, and he wants to define our lives by his forgiveness, by his mercy, and by his grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that in very personal and real life, relevant ways, you would call us into this marvelous light to be able to admit, and even with joy, admit that we have failed, and actually we've tried to cover up a lot of that, which only compounds it, which only makes us feel more guilty. And all the while, you're inviting us to come and to stand near you in your light and your love guaranteeing us that you really are not going to condemn us you want us near you because yeah you want to save us but for all eternity what you really want to do is treasure us and you want to love us and and you personally want to just joyfully be with us because you value us you you cherish us that much i pray that we would look at that we would Behold our Savior Jesus, we would savor this mystery of the Son of God coming to lay down his life for sinners, uh, coming not to be served, but to serve us and to pay with his own blood to have us as his treasured possession forever. And we pray this in his name. Amen.